Welcome back. We're going to wrap this thing up with unit three. <clears throat> I'm going to move pretty quickly through unit three because it's hopefully the most familiar. You just took a test on it on Wednesday, just or Tuesday, excuse me, and you did test corrections in class on Thursday. So you had the feedback back. And so hopefully it's something that you're able to, to remember and not have to spend a lot of time on this one part. Uh, all right. Just as a reminder, the test is on Friday the 10th. I said the 9th, that's because I have my dates mixed up. It is Friday the 10th. You will need your Chromebook because you will take this on the computer. Okay, Unit 3, the Legislative Branch. And I didn't put political participation, but it's on there. All right, so first off, the Senate and House differences. So a couple things you got to know. Some of the basics is the requirements. The House, you got to be 25 years old. You have to be a citizen for seven years. And you have to live within the state. The Senate, you have to be 30. You have to be a citizen for nine years. And you have to live within the state. Some other differences. The House is based on population. There's 435 members of the House. The Senate is based on equality. Every state has two. There are 100 total senators. The terms are different. The House serves a two-year term and they are continually running for re-election every two years. It is quite the process. The Senate, they have six-year terms. They have longer, and a third of them run every two years. There are no term limits, so they can run and win as much as they want to. If you don't like a congressperson, the argument is we'll kick them out, vote them out. There are some different things they can do. The Senate provides advice and consent, so for most things the president does, appoint judges, sign treaties, those sorts of things. That has to go through the Senate for approval. The House has all tax and revenue things starting over there. All right, the filibuster and the cloture. So first off, the filibuster is a tool only for the Senate because they have unlimited debate. They can do and talk as much as they want to. And the, really the only way to stop them is through the cloture, which I'll talk about in a moment. Okay. So the filibuster is a tool of the minority. So right now, the Republicans are the minority party in the Senate. So if a piece of legislation comes up that the Republicans do not like, they might choose to uh, filibuster that topic. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times, if you look up filibuster, it's going to say to talk a bill to death, to kill a bill. The thing is, you don't actually kill the bill, all right? The goal of the filibuster is to back up and create a backlog of other work. Because remember, the Senate is working on hundreds of bills each session. They don't just have like three things. So they have a ton of stuff and they have an agenda to get through. Because the Democrats don't know if they're going to be the majority party next go around. So they got to get what they can get done, done now. And so when the minority party gets in there and starts just talking about a bill, and dragging it out. That backs up all that other stuff that has to get done by the end of the session. And so the goal of a filibuster is to delay action on the bill and create the pressure on the majority party to let's get things done. How can we compromise? Or let's just scrap this bill altogether and let's move on to the next order of business. Okay. But that's the filibuster. Now you can end the filibuster with a cloture. Now that's a vote and it's the vote to end debate. So this would, if, if I stood up and said, okay, I'll make a cloture motion. That just means that I'm tired of the debate. Let's end the debate now. And let's move on to a vote on the issue. 
So I would need 60 senators with me to agree to the closure to end debate. So it is possible to end the filibuster, but no one has that 60. No one has had that 60 number for quite a while. Committees. All right. So a couple of things about committees. First off, uh, there are different types. There are standing committees. There are joint, select, and conference committees. Really, for our purposes, you need to remember standing and conference. Okay. Uh, the standing committee, those are the permanent ones. They're the ones that are there. They've been there, will be there. They survive from session to session. Every bill is introduced to one of these committees. So whatever the topic might be, it goes to that topic committee. And this is where the real work of the, the legislature takes place is in the committee. All right. It's not going to take place on the House floor. It's not going to take place on the Senate floor, although we have this idea, or at least I used to have this idea, that that's where all the work took place. It actually takes place in the back rooms in these committee work rooms because they'll get a bill and they can tear it apart. They're going to read it. They're going to call in experts to testify about it and give advice about it. They're going to make changes to it. They're going to take stuff out of these bills potentially, and eventually they will vote on it, whether to send it to the full House or the full Senate, whichever side you're on. Most bills die in committee. Okay. Most bills will get there. And for whatever reason, whether it was from the majority minority party or just no one wanted to talk about it or whatever the reason, most bills will be put on the shelf in the committee and they'll die a long, slow death at the, to the end of the session. Now, committees also serve the role of oversight where they watch over uh, bureaucratic agencies. It's something we'll talk about a little bit in the next unit. All right, how a bill becomes a law. So every bill has to be introduced by a congressperson. It can be introduced on the House side or the Senate side. Uh, it does not matter because it's going to cross over. Except for tax and revenue bills, those have to start on the House side. So it's introduced to Senate committee. The committee does the stuff we just talked about where they look at it, read it, edit it, make changes to it, do whatever they're going to do to it. And then it gets voted on in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the committee. If they vote favorably, it goes to the full House or the full Senate. They debate it. They vote on it. If it passes that side, then it crosses over and it goes to the same process on the other side. So the Senate could pass a bill that goes over to the House, and the House completely rips apart and completely changes and pass. But then they run into a problem because they can't send a bill that is different to the president. So they have to pass the same exact bill. So this is where the conference committee comes in. And the conference committee would come in and work out the differences if it's possible, make changes, make compromises, and eventually get the bill to be the same so they can send it on to the president who can then sign it or veto it. Signing it makes it to law. Vetoing it kills it for the most part. However, Congress can, with a two-thirds vote, override a veto. It doesn't happen too often because two-thirds of 535 is a big number to get to. And a lot of it's going to depend upon the president's popularity. If the president is super popular, people love this person, they're not going to override the veto. Congress people don't want to upset their constituents. However, if the president is super unpopular, they're more willing to uh, override those vetoes. So it depends on the popularity of the president at the time. 
All right, the redistricting process. So remember, this takes place every 10 years because of the census. So the census happens and the people get counted and they look at where people are living and they recognize within the state that some districts are too big, some districts are too small. You have overrepresentation, you have underrepresentation, and they got to make adjustments. Okay. Also from the census is something called reapportionment. That is only the House side. The number 435 is stuck. That is the number of Congress people on the House side that is going to be. But as states gain people and lose people in population, according to the census, they can gain and lose seats in the House. So in our most, most recent census, the 2020 census, a couple of states gained people. Florida gained two, Texas gained two, I think Arizona gained one. So since those states were gaining a seat, other states had to lose. So New York lost a seat, California lost a seat, I think Ohio lost one. So these places will lose seats. All right, so you've got reapportionment, you got redistricting. Redistricting is done by the, the states, whether you have to reapportion and redistrict or not, you can still redistrict. Uh, Georgia did not have to redistrict last time, but we did because our population had shifted. All right. So just to be sure, the census happens. We get a count. Based on that count, we reapportion the seats in the House. Some get seats gain. I mean, some states gain, some states lose. As a result, if you gain or lose, you have to redistrict. There's no way for you to have 14 districts but you only have 13 seats now or to have 15 representatives, but you only have 14 districts. Can't do that. You have to re, you have to redistrict. Some states like Georgia just choose to redistrict because of the population shifts. Alrighty. All that stuff can lead to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is the, the process of drawing the lines, redistricting to your benefit. And so the parties that are in control of the state legislature will do this. It can be challenged, but it is legal. All right, Senate and House leadership positions and responsibilities. All right, on the House side, you have the Speaker of the House. That is the most important, powerful position that's out there. The Speaker of the House is the one that runs the House. They will make the decisions uh, about who speaks for how long. Uh, they will make the decisions on who's on what committee from the majority party, who is in charge, who's the committee chair. Uh, they will work closely with the committees uh, on bills and laws that they like, that they don't like. And they just, they run the place. They're also third in line to the presidency. Okay. Uh, step down is the majority leader. So they are the majority party leader and they will work closely with the speaker. Then you've got the whips. The whips are going to be the ones that are kind of the go between between the regular house members and the house leadership. Now you also have the minority leader, but there's nothing really the minority leader can do other than just kind of wait because there's no tools like on the Senate side with the filibuster to really stop legislation. So the House can really, whoever's in charge of the House can really drive legislation through. On the Senate side, you officially have the Speaker of the House, excuse me, I'm very sorry, you officially have the President as the Vice President. Okay, so the Vice President of the United States is the President of the Senate. However, they never go because they can't take part in any debate. So they go concentrate on other issues, other concerns, other business. Uh, then you have the president pro tempore, which is kind of an honorary position. They don't really do what the speaker does. They'll sort of bang the gavel a little bit, but at the end of the day, 
they're just kind of a figurehead. The real powers between the majority and minority leader in the Senate, they, uh, they're supposed to work together to create an agenda. However, nowadays, we pretty much leave it to the majority leader. All right. And then you got the whips over there as well. All right. Lobbying. This is the <laughs> this is a job. You know, you can be a lobbyist if you want to. Uh, you're looking to influence politicians. And typically a lobbyist will be hired by some group, whether it be an interest group, church group, business group, whatever it might be. Someone that has a stake in a piece of legislation making it through or failing will hire a lobbyist to go try to influence Congress people into doing what they want. All right, Congress people don't have to listen to lobbyists, but lobbyists can be persuasive. They also will have the financial support of whatever group they're, they're working for. Finally, the 16th and 17th Amendment. The 16th is the worst one in the history of amendments. It created the income tax. I hate the income tax. I hate the 16th Amendment. I would like to see the 16th Amendment repealed. If you ever run for office, please consider making that proposal when you win. All right. Uh, the 17th Amendment, this is the one that created the direct election of senators. So prior to the 17th Amendment in like 1916, 17, somewhere in there, uh, state legislatures used to pick our senators. So John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock would have been picked by our legislatures. We, our state legislatures, we would have a voice picking the state legislatures, but they would get to pick the state senators. Okay. 17th Amendment says, no, we're going to do direct election senators. So that's why we get to go pick people. All right. Finally, it's not on there, but know what a PAC is, Political Action Committee. That is just a fundraising tool uh, to get around some of the regulations and re restrictions on how much can be donated from an individual businesses, corporations, interest groups, and all those kinds of things. All right, guys, there's the review. Once again, you can turn this thing in for extra credit. So hopefully you did and follow along in class. You didn't have to do much with the podcast. Uh, but if you needed to, hopefully you got that stuff down. Uh, either throw it into the Dropbox, which is on Google Classroom, or just give it to me in class on Friday the 10th. Once again, you're taking this on the computer. You'll be on, it'll be on E-Class. If I can help you, please let me know. Uh, shoot me an email or talking points text, and I will respond as quick as I can. Guys, best of luck on this midterm and whatever else you're doing, and I'll see you in class. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, American Government and Civics. Welcome to the review for your midterm. So this is something that we went over in class on that block day, Thursday, March 8th. Uh, so hopefully... Uh, this is just a, kind of a recap uh, for you, and uh, you're preparing for your test and ready to go on Friday the 9th. So we will take this test, actually Friday the 10th. I got my days mixed up, sorry. Um, so you're going to take the test. It's all multiple choice. You'll take the test on your computer. It'll be on E-Class. <clears throat> so when you get to school or get to class, excuse me, go ahead, pull out that thing, and uh Get logged in to eClass. Uh, once we're here and ready to start, I'll give you the password and uh, you'll get going with that thing. All right, so let's get rolling here. So uh, you've got three units to be concerned about for this test. You've got units one and two, which is basically uh, 
the, the foundation. So early on is like the types of government and, and things like that. And then the, the second half of, of that of those units is the Constitution and federalism and those sorts of things. So uh, that's that part. And then the last part is the most recent stuff we've done, which is the legislative branch and political participation. So uh, if you want the review, I gave you a hard copy in class. If you weren't there, it is on a Google Classroom. You can get a copy there. And uh, let's get rolling because that's what you're here for. All right. So the Bill of Rights. First off, the Bill of Rights as a whole. All right. You need to remember uh, a couple things about the Bill of Rights. First off, it is uh, the first 10 amendments and it is a listing of our liberties that we have um, in this country. Those are things the government can't take away. So when you hear the, the term limited government, think of the Bill of Rights, because those are limitations placed on the United States government. Those are the things they cannot do. They cannot take those things away from you. Also, remember, this was a uh, compromise because we'll get to the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists in just a moment. But at the end of the day, the Anti-Federalists were not willing to sign off on that new document, the Constitution, without some kind of protections in place for the citizens, because there was no mention of any of those things in the new Constitution. There's no guarantee that the government was going to protect people's free speech or your right to no cruel and unusual punishment and those sorts of things. It was just assumed that the government would never do that. So yeah, I'm really glad that the Anti-Federalists pushed for this document. So anyways, uh, the First Amendment, you know, once again, all, all 10 of them uh, are civil liberties. The First Amendment has five, and it's kind of like the base. Hey, here's the basic civil liberties of people. They have free speech, they have free press, they have free religion, they're allowed to assemble, and they're allowed to petition the government. Okay. Uh, federalism, this is the sharing of powers between uh, multiple levels of government. In our case, we have the uh, federal government. So those people up in Washington, D.C., the president, our national Congress, the House of Representatives, the, the, the Senate, uh, they, they can make rules. They make policies that we have to follow. Then you come down here to Georgia uh, and we've got our governor. We've got our state legislatures. They make rules and policies that we have to follow. And we can go further down to our county, to our city, uh, to the school, and just all kinds of places. But federalism, hopefully you get the idea. It's just the sharing of power. All right, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. Uh, all right, so we already said that the Anti-Federalists basically put their foot down and required that Bill of Rights before they would agree to sign off on this document. Uh, the Constitution. And so that's an important concept to remember. What's the other differences here? Well, the Federalists, just remember, they were for the new Constitution. They were for a strong central government. They recognized that the Articles of Confederation had created this poor government, this weak government that didn't work. And so they were like, we need to, to do something to make some changes. And the, the new Constitution, the new government was going to be those changes. The Anti-Federalists, I don't want to say they were completely not on board with the Constitution. They recognized that the Articles of Confederation was a pretty weak government. And so they had come to the Constitutional Convention thinking, hey, we're going to just change this thing to give the new government some more power and, and things like that. So they were there to edit it. And then all of a sudden, you get the Virginia plan being you know, presented and well, we have a whole new government. And so the Anti-Federalists were on board with making changes. They weren't necessarily on board with Let's blow this whole thing up. And also remember, they were 
all about keeping the states having power and rights. All right. And the new constitution is going to take some of that away. But also federalism is a compromise because when they signed that constitution, they did give up a lot of their rights, a lot of their power as states. But federalism allowed them to keep some of their power. All right, the formal amendment process. So there are two steps here. You got to remember the numbers, the fractions. You've got a national level and you've got a state level. The national level proposes. All right, so Congress at the national level, so those individuals up in Washington, D.C., they propose an amendment. And the full Congress votes if two thirds, so that's a fraction, two thirds say, yes, we want this amendment. It goes on to the next step. If they get less than two-thirds, then it just dies. If, it, if the proposal passes, it then goes to the states for ratification. The state's legislature, the state legislature, so down in Atlanta, would get this document, and they would take a look at it. They would talk about it, discuss it, debate it, and then they would hold a vote on it. If our state said yes, and along with 37 other states, you need to get three-fourths or 38 to pass an amendment and make it a part of the Constitution. Now, there's some other steps that we have we have not used. We could call a national convention. We've never done that because we already got Congress in place. What's the point? We could also, for the ratification, call state conventions. We've only done that once when they repealed the 18th Amendment. All right, the enlightened thinkers, you got Locke and Montesquieu. Uh, there's others, but for the test, these are the two to know. You got Locke, who is going to be a part of the social contract theory. But his big, big thing is the uh, natural rights. The social contract, though, this is the agreement, in theory, agreement between us as citizens and our government. So we enter into this agreement <clears throat> that you know, we assume we could govern ourselves. We could probably divide up and maybe by neighborhoods or, or something like that. And we could come up with a small group. And we can govern ourselves. Instead, we give up that right. All right. So we give up that right and we turn it over to the government. In turn, the government agrees to, I don't want to say take care of us because that's not what the government is designed to do. However, but the government does agree to protect us, to make laws that are going to be fair and just and needed. All right. So it's this give and take. So, yes, we could govern ourselves, but for the good of the group, we give that right up in the social contract and we turn it over to the government who agrees to, to make laws that will protect us. The natural rights, those are those rights that every person has. Okay. Uh, so everybody listening to this podcast has the natural rights of life, liberty, and then Locke had said property. Jefferson's going to change it to the pursuit of happiness. Bottom line, every person is guaranteed these rights. And this is something that's very important to us even today. Uh, if you are ever arrested, hopefully you never are, but if you are and you're charged and they're going to try and take away your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the government has to go through all the steps of the Fourth through Eighth Amendment to be sure you're being treated fairly and that if they're going to take these rights away, they have given you a fair shot to show that you're innocent or whatever, whatever the, the deal might be. But it's something that's very important to us uh, even today. And Locke's going to be the one that comes up with those. Uh, it is up to the government to protect our natural rights. Montesquieu, remember Montesquieu is going to write during a time when the monarch could do whatever they wanted to. So they could write a law in the morning, uh, enforce it 
in the afternoon and judge it that night. If not, quicker. They could do everything before breakfast if they wanted to. Uh, and he's going to write about how that's not right. That's not how a government should be run. There should not be one person with all that power. And that's the, the crux of his writing. Uh, and so the separation of powers is an idea that we took from Montesquieu, Jefferson, the framers, all those individuals uh, really thoroughly believed in this because they just experienced King George being able to do kind of what he wanted to. He was relied on a parliament too. But anyways, the separation of powers led to our three branches of government, the executive to enforce, the legislative to write, and the judicial to interpret. All right, clauses of the Constitution. So you got commerce, necessary and proper, and supremacy. The commerce clause is pretty simple. This was started, or not started, this was created because under the Articles of Confederation, the government could not control the commerce. So you had states taxing each other, making deals with other countries, uh, just, it was a mess. And so they put specific language in there. Hey, the only people that can do that kind of stuff, that can control interstate commerce and make deals with other countries and trade and all that whatnot, uh, is the national government, specifically Congress. The necessary and proper clause is something that the framers foresaw, that they couldn't think of every possible scenario, every possible situation that would arise. And there was going to have to be some wiggle room within the document. So they wrote into that constitution, specifically in Article 1, which is the legislative branch, hey, there's going to be times, basically, when there's going to be stuff that's outside of this document. Congress is going to have to be able to act on those situations. Um, and so they created the necessary and proper clause. Necessary and proper clause is sometimes called the elastic clause. And it's just that because it allows Congress to kind of work outside of what is given to them in the Constitution. So as long as they're doing something that has a constitutional basis, it falls under their purview and they're allowed to, to work and do things with it. The supremacy clause was put in there specifically because the articles was weak. The articles was bad. The articles of confederation was a poor government. And so the framers wanted to put into their new document a list, basically, of an order, or however you want to say it, of this is what's top. This is what we're looking to at all times. And so number one in the Supremacy Clause is the Constitution. Everything has to be decided based on the constitutionality of stuff. Then it goes to the federal government, and so the federal laws. This is why I say at any moment the federal government could decide, you know what, marijuana is something that we're going to push and uh, we're going to to end the states that have it legalized because it's still a federally illegal substance. And so they could at any time they wanted to with the supremacy clause come in and shut that down. All right, the foundational documents, uh, like I said in class, they're not going to be specific questions about the Magna Carta, the petition rights. You just need to remember as a whole, all of these things are going to contribute to our new government in one way or the other, and they all took power away from the monarch of the time, uh, starting way back in 1215 with uh, King John, I think it was. Uh, he lost some power, and you know the other two uh, took power away from the king as well. All right, let's stop for a quick break. Welcome back. So we're picking up with the Federalist Papers. Now, we've already kind of talked about those earlier, 
with the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. But just as a reminder, the Federalist Papers were written in support of the new Constitution. So basically, the Anti-Federalists would put out a problem, an issue they had. And the Federalist Papers were typically written as a response. Some of them were in quick succession. Uh, some of them took a few days to, to in between. But just recall and remember, hey, these things were all in support of the new Constitution. And they were addressing problems, issues uh, that the anti-federalists had with the new, new, new constitution. So, you know, in class, I told you about Fed 51. Fed 51 is about separation of powers and checks and balances. The worry from the anti-federalists was that the new government was going to allow an individual or a branch to become too powerful and take control and basically rule as a tyrant. And so James Madison in Fed 51 writes about, well, you know, that is an issue and that could be a problem, but we have this stuff in place. And then he went on to talk about and discuss how the separation of powers has the three branches and they all have checks and balances over each other. And uh, it's going to, it's not going to be a problem. All right. The types of government uh, oligarchy. Remember, this is group rule. So here's a couple of people, three, four, 10, 15, whatever the number is. Uh, here's a group of people. They're going to make rules. They're going to make the laws. They're going to be in charge. On the first test you took, uh, the example was from Greece, right? So some Greek city-states ruled as an oligarchy. The democracy, uh, so representative democracy is what we are. Uh, you might sometimes, basically representative democracy and republic are basically the same thing at this point. Uh, and so that is just the fact that we, as citizens, don't make decisions for ourselves. Remember the social contract, we turned our rights over to govern ourselves. And, and now we use this system where we give authority to elected officials. And that's what a representative democracy is. So no one ever asked me how I feel about this topic, that topic, and whatnot. My representative will make decisions. Sometimes I agree with them. Sometimes I don't. You know, I think I told you in class that uh, the, the Georgia state legislature failed to pass a bill to legalize sports betting. Well, I don't agree with that. I think they should legalize it. I think it'd bring a lot of money to this state. Uh, people are going out of town to do it. So why not keep it here and keep that money here? But anyways, that's a, another podcast for another day. Uh, but anyways, that's what a representative democracy is. A confederation is a group of states or countries. So like the European Union is an example. They have free trade amongst each other, uh, amongst the members. They have the same euro, you know, the dollar that they use. Uh, and some of the policies will flow between the countries. But at the end of the day, they're also going to look out for themselves. So, you know, Italy is going to look out for Italy. France is going to look out for France, so on and so forth. Uh, the Articles of Confederation, think back to that. Those first thir that first government was a loose confederation of the 13 states. Um, the Confederacy, when the South broke off from the, the Union in the Civil War, uh, that was a confederation. So it's a group of states, group of countries, whatever it might be, that kind of work together, but and they have kind of a centralized leadership, but they can do what they want to. <clears throat> and then an autocracy, that is ruled by one person. So think of a king, a monarch, uh, a dictator, people like that. All right, the Constitutional Convention. So you had the Virginia Plan. Now remember, the Virginia Plan is the framework for the new government. All right, so hey, we're, we're coming here to, to rewrite the articles to, to make it better. And then all of a sudden you got this Virginia plan being laid out and it is a completely new setup, a new government. 
All right. Now, within the Virginia plan, it had a two house legislature because one of the problems with the articles was it only had one legislature, one house, and every state was equal. Okay. So the Virginia plan lays out a two house legislature. And we're going to, we're not going to get into how they decided that they wanted to pick the representatives because that was a whole other issue and problem. Um, but one of the ways was by population. So, hey, the larger states are going to be super happy with the Virginia plan because they're going to be able to run things. So the little states got together and they're like, eh, we don't like that. Here's our plan for representation. And they came up with the New Jersey plan, which is going to be uh, all states are equal. And so uh, that's the system we have today uh, with the Senate. And the House is based on population, which comes from the Great Compromise. So we snap our fingers and it's like, boom, we're done. Great Compromise. That's easy. But back then, remember, you know, it's a lot of arguing, a lot of back and forth about this topic. And they finally come to the Great Compromise. And the Great Compromise, once again, is just going to be that piece that combines the two, the Virginia and New Jersey plan, and creates a two-house legislature. So you have the House, which is based on population. Large states are happy because they have the power there. And then you have the Senate, which is based on equality. Little states are happy because they all have the same voice. All right, representation is going to be an issue. You got the three-fifths compromise. So <clears throat> population counted for two things. It counted for how many representatives you had in the House, and it also counted for your taxes. So how much are the taxes going to be for Georgia, for um, Virginia, New York, and all those different states back then? So the South is, is looking around, and they recognize that they have this huge population that they have never really counted, and that is the slave population. And when I say counted, I mean they unfortunately did not consider them people or part of the, the population. So now all of a sudden, though, is going to benefit them. And so the South is like, well, hey, we want to count our slave population for representation purposes. But they didn't want to count them for the tax purposes. The North was the opposite. The North was like, well, hey, they have this whole population down there for tax purposes. That should be included in the population count. However, for the representation purposes, it should not. And so that was the impasse there. Uh, was they both wanted to have the state population count for one thing, but not for the other. And they disagreed there. Eventually, they're going to decide on the three-fifths compromise where they're going to count three-fifths of the state population for both taxes and representation purposes. All right, strict interpretation of the Constitution versus loose. So the strict interpretation means you have to see it in the document. So it has to be in the Constitution. You cannot go outside the lines here. If it doesn't say that uh, a president, a congressperson can do this, then you can't do it. Now, my favorite example, because I'm a U.S. history person, is Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. Thomas Jefferson was a strict constructionist, all right, strict interpretation of the Constitution. And so the Louisiana Purchase comes up for sale, and he struggles. He really, really struggles with, with this decision because it doesn't say in the Constitution anywhere that the president or Congress, for that matter, can expand the United States. Now, eventually, he is going to kind of give in, and they purchase it, obviously, because we have that, that whole territory. Uh, but it was a question. It's not in the Constitution, so can I do it? Loose is going to allow for that interpretation of the document. All right, so loose is going to, to allow for that. Now, it says the opinion of the elastic clause. So the question is going to be about, hey, how would a, who would be have a problem with the elastic clause or something like that? 
And there's going to be the strict interpretation, the strict instructions, because once again, it has to be in the document for them to, to agree. The elastic clause, though, the necessary and proper, allows Congress to paint outside of the lines a little bit. All right, the Articles of Confederation, uh, the first government of the, the country, and it had several weaknesses. Okay, so let's talk about those for just a minute. Uh, first off, there was no executive. There was no president. There was no body to look to. You had this National Congress, but it was just this big group of people. You, you needed someone to be the face, and the Articles didn't have that. There's no courts, so there's no federal court system. You had state courts, but the state courts would rule differently on the different issues. And so uh, there was no uniformity there. So you really needed a federal court system in place. They could not tax. There was no taxes. The first year, the Articles of Confederation government asked the states, hey, please send us a total of $5 million. So like all the states combined was going to send $5 million. They got like 400000 Okay, that's not a good, that's, there's no way to run a government that way. There's no military. Congress cannot set up a federal military or national military. They were relying on the states, but the states didn't have to listen to them. So when there was a need for military, they didn't have to send the state militaries or the state militias. It took nine out of 13 states to make a, a law under the Articles. It took 13 out of 13 unanimous to make a change to the Articles of Confederation. This is a problem because they needed to make changes but the states weren't working together to get anything done. And then finally was the commerce issue. Uh, the national government could not control commerce between the states. They also could control st commerce between other countries and the states. And so that was leading to a problem. All right, so those are the weaknesses that you'll need to remember. Parliamentary versus presidential democracy. So both of these are, are very similar. They both have kind of a Congress under the presidential system, a parliament under the parliamentary system. Presidential system has a president. Typically, the parliament has some kind of prime minister. Bottom line, they both have an executive. Okay. Now, where it gets different is how they pick their executive. The presidential democracy, which is what we have and operate with, we as citizens get to pick our president versus the parliamentary system where it is picked from the parliament. So the citizens don't have that voice in that say so. Authoritarian government versus democratic government. So this question, I think you've seen this question before. It's going to ask you who has the most citizen involvement. And the answer is always going to be democratic government. Okay, Authoritarian government is not going to take into account what the people need usually. That person rules as they see fit. And whatever they think is the best, that's what goes. Versus a democratic government, which is supposed to be everything being done for the people. The powers, you've got the expressed slash enumerated, concurrent, reserved. So expressed, enumerated, that's stuff for the federal government typically, uh, and it is going to be written in the Constitution. So you can go and you can find the article, the section, the clause, where it says they can do that. Now, I don't know off the top of my head what article this, or excuse me, what section this is in, what clause, but in Article 1, it says the only people that can print money is the National Congress. That's expressed. That is their power. That is their authority. Concurrent power, this is stuff that um, the states and the national government share because of federalism. So they can both do these things. So taxing is one of those things. We can be taxed by the federal government. We can also be taxed by the state government. 
And then reserved powers, this comes from the 10th Amendment, and this is the powers that are left to the state. So the reserved powers, as long as it's not specifically denied in the Constitution, stuff is left to the states. So, for example, in the Constitution, it says the only people that can declare war is the national government, the national Congress. States can't do that. So that's expressly forbidden. So Georgia can't say, hey, we want some island front property and go sail down to the Bahamas and take over the Bahamas. We couldn't do that. Okay. Uh, but there are things that are not mentioned in the Constitution that is left to the states. So education is, there's no mention of education in the Constitution. So the education system is left to the states. That's a reserve power of the states. Declaration of Independence, it was written by Thomas Jefferson. And remember, he took input from the uh, philosophers, those enlightened philosophers, to get that document done. All right, guys, let's take one last break. And when we come back, we'll finish this thing up. <laughs> 